Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southwood, and I want to welcome you to Grace. Uh, if you're new here, we are in the middle of uh, a series where we are walking all year, right, fall, f- through the fall, through the spring, through the letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, sent to the early church in Rome. It's a letter we call Romans. And this letter, this this book, this message uh, is incredibly dense. There is a lot of theology. There's a lot of really practical like doctrine and, and practices that are addressed in the book of Romans. But one of the things that we see in the book of Romans over and over and over again is Paul's writing to these early believers who are in an incredibly influential city, right? They're in the capital of the greatest empire of the world. As he's writing to them, as he's mindful of how they will have opportunity to influence all all of the world, all of creation for the sake of the Lord, he's making sure that in this letter he repeats time and time and time and time and time and time again that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news they've ever heard. Right? That the gospel, literally the good news of Jesus Christ is in fact the best news. That this message of hope and salvation by grace through faith in Christ will change everything. That's what he's communicating time and time and time again. And so if you were with us over the last few weeks, you know that in Romans 1 through 3, Paul talks a lot about the bad news. He talks about kind of the setup for why we desperately need the grace of God, this unmerited favor from God. It's because we, in and of ourselves, stand condemned, that the wrath of God is revealed against all of creation because we've exchanged the truth for a lie because we've rejected the creator and we've worshiped the creation and all of our works, all the things that we can do are not enough to fulfill the relational obligation to make things right, to reconcile ourselves with the Lord, that our works in, the, in essence are worthless. The best we can do is not good enough. And Paul is so clear in Romans 1 through 3 that this is true of all people. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And we see this, right? We understand that in our lives that works don't work, that we cannot, in fact, push, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We cannot, in fact, do enough or be perfect in the way that God requires of us in order to fulfill his law. We cannot be perfectly obedient to the law of God. Therefore, We have all fallen short. It's something that we sense and feel in our own lives. It's something we see in the world around us, specifically in these little kids trying to get out of a tent. We've all fallen. We've all fallen or we all throw ourselves to the ground in solidarity with our buddies. Our work is worthless. This is what Paul reiterates time and time and time again in the first three chapters of Romans. And at the end of that third chapter, though, Paul does make a turn. He says, hey, just as the wrath of God has been revealed against all of creation, he says, so too the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so God has made a way for us to receive his righteousness, right standing, the rightness we need with God. God says, I'm going to provide that for you through your faith in 
Jesus Christ. He says, that's what I have done for your sake. And so we now understand that our lives, even though they're never going to be perfect, even though we're never going to measure up to the standard of glory and holiness that God himself embodies, we understand that we can in fact proclaim God's glory. We can reflect God's glory. We can tell the world about God's glory by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is good news. And yet it's news that Paul knew people would still have hangups with. He knew that his original audience would they would they would buck up against this. They would think, gosh, I just I don't see how this is gonna work. I just don't know if that's really enough. Like I don't know if Jesus did enough. I don't know if like maybe my works should count a little bit. And so Paul's gonna reiterate over and over again. And in fact, in chapter four, where we're spending our time today, we're in Romans chapter four, the whole chapter, verses one through twenty-five. And as we read through Romans 4, what we're going to see is Paul essentially use the example of Abraham. Because he's going to say, hey, knowing that there was a high or a large Jewish audience that he's writing to, they looked back at Abraham and they, he was like the hero of heroes. In fact, especially over the, the centuries of silence that we talked about a few years or sorry, a few weeks ago, where God essentially, he, he didn't speak to his people for, for hundreds of years while he was preparing the way for Christ to come, during that time where Israel was being oppressed and persecuted, they raised their view. We talked a few weeks ago of how they, they suddenly viewed, they raised their view of circumcision as essentially salvific, which was wrong. They also raised their view of Abraham, where scholars and religious leaders at that time, they started to talk about Abraham as if he was perfect, Literally, one of the quotes from a rabbi in that time, they said that Abraham was perfect in the eyes of God, that he did nothing wrong. He was perfect in his obedience, which we read the book of Genesis, and we know that's not true. Abraham made plenty of mistakes, plenty of mistakes. One of the big ones being he lied about his wife being a sister and to try to not get killed, and it got weird, um, as you can imagine, right? Like, that's, that's something that Abraham did. There are many examples Abraham made mistakes, but Paul's going to bring Abraham as an example, not of his works, but of his faith. And so Paul's going to lay it out over the course of chapter 4, kind of in these three main movements. He's going to talk about how Abraham believed in God's promise, which allowed him to receive God's grace and led him to proclaim God's glory across the ages. All right, so read with me in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul is essentially setting up this illustration. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh, has discovered regarding this, ma- this matter? This matter being the fact that we are saved not by works, but by grace through faith in Christ. He says, how do we see Abraham deal with this, this choice between trying to save yourself through works or instead by being saved through faith in God's promise. He says, if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Oh, mic drop. Like that's, this is Paul essentially saying, hey, look, if Abraham did a lot of great things, and, Abraham, and Paul's not trying to knock Abraham down my peg. Like he's saying, yeah, Abraham was an important ancestor. God chose Abraham and worked through Abraham in mighty ways. It says, but even if Abraham 
did all these great works that we can look at, that we can praise, that we can celebrate. He says, he might have something to boast about in front of you chuckleheads. He says, but he has no room to boast before God. No room to boast before God. Why? Because God's standard is perfection. And Paul's saying Abraham was not perfect. Even if he did great things, it's never enough. His absolute best was not good enough. And so Paul then quotes from Genesis, from Genesis 15. He says, what does the scripture say? Right? In other words, he's like, okay, so let's look at the, God's writing about Abraham. Does God say that Abraham was perfect? Does, did God tell us that Abraham earned his salvation by works? No. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his pay is not credited due to grace, but due to obligation. Paul is explaining, he says, look, we can read God's account. Romans, or sorry, Genesis 15 is very clear that Abraham believed the promise that God had made about land, seed, and blessing. And he made, God made this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. Paul says, he's quoting from Genesis. He says, it, that was what, that belief, that trust, that faith, that's what was credited to him as righteousness. Other translations will say this was, 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 uh, this was reckoned to him. But, but literally this term here, this credited term in the Greek means that I am essentially putting something into your account. That's why credited is a really good English kind of uh, translation. That it's if, you're, if someone credits something to your account, then, oh, now I have, you know, in my bank account, I'm credited $100. I now have $101 in my bank account. Wow. You know, like that's great. Paul says that God took... Abraham's faith, and he graciously, right, not out of obligation, it's not that Abraham worked for it and earned it, he says, but out of grace, God credited to Abraham this righteousness, which if you remember last week, this righteousness is meaning right relationship with God, meaning that all relational obligations have been fulfilled. And so God is graciously crediting to Abraham that all is fulfilled in their relationship simply through Abraham's faith, not his works. And Paul's just hammering this home. He says, to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly, ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. He says, it's not that we've become perfectly godly people, but instead we believe in the one who justifies. Remember we talked about this in the last few weeks, to justify one means to declare someone righteous. It doesn't mean that we are transformed and suddenly perfect. We're not. We await that perfection. We await that glory in eternity with our heavenly father. But in the meantime, God says, I will declare you righteous because Jesus has fulfilled, he's, he's provided what, you, what I've required. He has fulfilled the law. He has been perfect. And therefore, if you trust in him, I will declare you righteous. I will credit to you this righteousness through your faith. Paul says, this is now true for all of us, not just for Abraham. It says, even David himself speaks regarding the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Quotes from Psalms. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count sin or literally will never credit or reckon sin. Paul quotes from Psalm 32. 
And this psalm is all about David saying, wow, blessed be the one who believes in the Lord because the Lord, through our belief, just simply through our faith, he will in fact withhold condemnation. He will not in fact credit sin into our account, but will instead forgive. So this is just another side of the same coin. Paul's saying God does not count our sin against us. He doesn't credit sin. Instead, he credits righteousness. Not by our works, but by his grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying our belief, it eliminates the room that we have to boast. But it's hard because we just are wired, we are hardwired to want to boast. We are hardwired to want to do more, to do something to prove ourselves or to earn our place, right? There's just something in us that drives us in that direction. And Paul is just clear in Romans and in other letters that he wrote to churches of saying, your works, they, they, I promise they really, they're not gonna be enough. If you're leaning on your works, it's not gonna be enough. Now, does God want us to live holy lives? Of course, God wants us to obey his law. That's why in the end of three, Paul says, we're not nullifying the law. We're not throwing out the law. Is we uphold it. God wants us to live a holy life. He wants us to put our faith into practice. But that faith, or sorry, that practice, that behavior is not what's going to save us. Therefore, we have no room to boast. This is how Paul describes it in his own life in Philippians 3, writing to another early church. He says, more than that, he's talking about uh, his contentment. He's talking about his, his work and his achievement. He says, more than that, I regard all of my personal achievement, all these things as liabilities in other words, detriments and dangers compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ. Paul uses very strong language. We don't normally talk about dung uh, in the main service but it's in the Bible. This isn't Jacob's thing. This is God. And so uh, he, but Paul says, look, I'm going to look at all these accomplishments, all these great things I've done. And he talks about like his heritage and he talks about what he's done, like who he studied under and all these cool things he did. He says, I, all of it, he says, it's worthless. It's worthless. In fact, it's a liability compared to the greater value of just knowing Jesus Christ. That term for knowing is, is a deep, full, holistic understanding says, that's what I pursued, to just know my Lord, to know him, to understand him, to be with him. That's, that's what is greatest. All that other stuff, that other flim flam, he says, man, I, I couldn't think any less of it. Does not move me, does not move the needle, does not bring me closer to the Lord, to just all those things that I've accomplished. Says, those things are not what save me. Right, all these things. And yet there's a part of us, as I said, that we want to boast, right? We want to boast, but this is true of all of us. This is true of all of us. I remember a few years ago, my wife and I were walking past our kid's bathroom and man, it was like this late Saturday night. I was preaching the next morning. We're walking past it and we, it smelled, like there's this smell came to us that was just the death of hope. And so, we went inside, we were like, what is going on? We didn't see anything. There was nothing like out and about. There's nothing on the floor, nothing in the toilet, nothing like that. But just this, this 
smell. And so we were like, okay, I don't know what's going on. Um, so let's just try, we'll just try flushing the commode and see what happens. So we flush the toilet and water starts to pour out of the bottom of the toilet, like out of the base. And then we're like, okay, it's time to move, right? And so we sold that house. Uh, so we realized that we're like, what is happening, right? And so uh, we're trying to clean it up. We get it kind of cleaned up. We don't flush that again, but we're like, okay, let's go flush this stuff down our toilet. So we go to our bathroom, put the stuff in our toilet, flush it, and then water starts to just bubble out of the base, the bottom of our toilet as well. It's just coming out. We're like, okay, so I'm Googling, like, did we build on an ancient burial burial ground? Like an ancient burial ground? Is this a cursed land? Uh, you know, what's happening? And when, at, through my research, I discover that basically we had symptoms of a sewer main being clogged. That apparently the main pipe thing under our house was, was clogged up. And so nothing was going to work. No, no sinks, nothing was going to work. And so I call 24-hour plumber. I call this guy, get connected with Greg. And Greg's like, all right. He's like, I can't get out there till Sunday morning. I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. But we've got little kids. Like, man, it would be really helpful if we could use, like, showers or potties or something, man, because this is, this is rough. And so he was like, all right, that's fine. He's like, I, here's what you can do. He says, if you want to, you know, be able to use a little bit of your water, he says, I need you to go out in your yard and I need you to find your overflow pipe. I was like, I don't know what that is, Greg, but if you talk me through it, I, I believe. And so uh, he talked me through it. I went out in your yard. I found, I was like, oh, sure enough, there's this big old white pipe that's popping up in the middle of our yard. He was like, okay, you got to just screw the top off that bad boy. And I was like, all right, Greg. So I screw it off. And, oh, but <laughs> as soon as I took the lid off, there was relief. There was release, and I had to throw away those shoes, but I <laughs> discovered, okay, there is a way for us to still use our equipment in our home for this time being before Greg could come the next morning and clear things out. But man, I'll tell you that when I took that lid off that pipe in my yard, I was like, nothing good comes from my family. Like this is, we have, this is what sin has done to creation. And when Paul talks about the work of our hands, when Paul talks about like those titles that we earn and those like achievements that we make, when he talks about the, the way that we serve and the way that we give, and he talks about the way that we've you know, earned our place or proven ourselves, he says, all of that, all of that, so I regard it as that stuff just coming out of the overflow pipe compared to knowing being still and knowing my God. So yeah, there's a part of us that wants to boast. But as followers of Jesus Christ, what we should practice, what we should commit ourselves to, honestly, is to be silent. To be silent before our God. To remember that he has done the work we could never do that he has provided what he required, that we could have never earned, we could have never proven, we could have never achieved on our own. Again, yes, God wants us to live lives that honor him, that are lived according to his will. Yes. But those works can't save us. It is only by his grace, through our faith in Jesus Christ, so we can come before our God, we can be still, we can be silent, and we can be thankful. Right? That's where Paul's going to move 
in the next kind of as he's unpacking the life of Abraham. It's thankfulness. It's gratitude for the reception of God's grace. Read with me, uh, starting in verse 9. Paul says, is this blessedness then for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? For we say that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, so Paul's going back to, I mentioned it earlier, one of the Jews' favorite like examples of a work that could save them was this circumcision, this mark that they belonged to the Lord. Paul says, okay, so was that it? Like, is that what got Abraham across the finish line? Or is it something more than that? He says, reminds them again, faith was what was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And how then was it credited to him? Was he circumcised at the time or not? Now Paul's playing a little bit of like, are you smarter than a fifth grade Hebrew kid? And he's saying, do you remember the timeline? Like, was Abraham, was he circumcised whenever he received that promise, when this was credited to him in in Genesis 15? And Paul says, no, he was not circumcised, but he was in fact circumcised. Take that, people, man, that's unspoken. And, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul says, Abraham received this promise from God, or he believed in this promise from God. He was credited to him as righteousness. He says, and it wasn't until years, it was like four or five years later that God gave to Abraham the practice of circumcision to mark himself and his descendants as those who are set apart for the Lord's work. Abraham didn't have that at the time. In other words, according to Paul's current Jewish audience, they would have, they would have thrown Abraham at the point where he believed and was credited righteousness. They would have tossed him into the Gentile camp. Paul says, that's what's so faulty about your reasoning. He's like, it doesn't, he's already debunked this of like circumcision, it's of the heart, that the physical is not even important. He says it's about the spiritual, but he's just hammering it home with Abraham. He says, Abraham wasn't even circumcised. He didn't even have that mark whenever his faith was credited to him as righteousness. God still worked through him, even though he hadn't gone through that whole rigmarole so that he would become the father of all who believe, but have never been circumcised, that they too could have righteousness credited to them. Paul says, and this is the reason, because God chose through Abraham to save all the world, not just the Jews, not just the Hebrews, not just those that are descendants of Abraham by the flesh, but in fact, Abraham was the example set forward. He was the forerunner for anyone who believes, right? This is how Paul kind of, wraps up this portion. He says, he is the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham possessed when he was still uncircumcised. Paul's saying that it is all about his faith. And we are in the sense, children, descendants of Abraham, not because of our bloodline, not because of our behavior, but because of our belief in the one who is good and righteous and faithful to save. For the promise, promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not fulfilled through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Paul, again, is just reiterating the same point. And in the same way, just as Abraham wasn't circumcised, Abraham didn't have a law. That didn't come till the time of Moses. 
So Paul's saying, look, these things that you're elevating above faith, they don't work. And Abraham didn't even have those things. You're greatest hero of all time. It's just not how the Lord operates. It has always been a salvation, a righteousness that comes through faith. For if people became heirs by the law, verse 14, faith is empty and the promise is nullified. Literally, the term here, this emptiness, is the faith is without content. It's useless. It's, it's, and this promise, this idea of nullified, it means invalid. It doesn't work. It's, it's like big red X, like bomb, stamped on top of it. It says if God was in any way requiring us to f- perfectly fulfill the law, he says that faith is useless, promise doesn't count because it's impossible. For the law brings what? Wrath. Because where there is no law, there's no transgression either. Paul uses the term, this law bringing wrath. It is the continual active. He's saying the law continually brings, continues right now, right here, right now to bring wrath from God because we know what is perfect. We know the standard and yet we don't meet it. He says, if we didn't have a law, we wouldn't even, we'd be ignorant. He says, but, but ignorance is not our problem. It's rebellion. That's what he says in Romans chapter one. He says, and for this reason, it is by faith, verse 16, it is by faith so that it may be by grace with the result that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are under the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Right, so Paul's just, he's making the same point again, that we are saved by faith, sorry, by grace through faith in Christ. So this is the grace of God. And so all of us, Abraham becomes this father of all this promise that was given to Abraham, right? This idea of being father of the many nations. This is a promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17. It says it's fulfilled through us for anyone who believes in God's promise, just as Abraham did. He says, now we, we believe in the promise of God that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't get that kind of knowledge, but he knew that God would make a way. He says, Paul's saying that we now know the way. It's been revealed. It's Jesus. And so if we believe in him, that he has fulfilled God's promise, we are in a sense following in the footsteps of Abraham, a man who is not saved by works, but a man who is justified and credited righteousness by faith. And so our worth is not determined or changed by our work. Again, I mean, it's, The same thing we've seen for the last few weeks. Our worth is not determined by our work. And we see it, Paul explained it time and time again. I'm saying it time and time again because there's still a part of us that even though we hear it, it's easy to say this is a hard thing to really sink in because there's a part of us that wants to work. And this just comes in a lot of different ways. It shows up in our relationships, it shows up in our responsibilities. It shows up in the way that we conduct ourselves before people and before God. And there's a sense that, gosh, I need, I need to somehow do enough or be enough, or I need to not do this stuff or God's gonna be disappointed and he's gonna be ashamed of me and God's gonna be mad at me. And yes, God, again, wants us to live a holy life. But God does not determine his love for us. If we are either... Right? The, the reality is that we are either a child of God or an enemy of God. 
That's it. Those are the two designations we find in Scripture. We are all born into rebellion. We are all born children of wrath, enemies of God. Right? This is what our gospel tells us. This is the good news. That even though we were born dead in our trespass, even though we were born enemies of God, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that none of us would ever live. He died the death that every single one of us deserved because of our failure. And then he rose on the third day to prove his power to justify, to save, to deliver, to redeem all of these enemies. That if we simply put our faith, if we trust, if we call on his name, we might be saved. And so suddenly we are adopted out of this family of death and and depravity and destruction. And we are adopted into the family of God, sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. And nothing changes that. This is where Paul's going in Romans 5 and in Romans 8. He says nothing is going to invalidate, nothing's going to retroactively destroy this relational shift that you've achieved by faith in Christ. This is the good news that we are not, we don't have to be enemies, that we can become children. And for those of us that have had children, that have children, for those of us that hopefully even have been children, we recognize that there is nothing that destroys that relationship. There's nothing that can rip that apart. Now, can we strain that relationship between a parent and a child? Sure, but that relationship is secure and God has calls us his children. God calls himself, tells us to call him our father. And works don't change that. God wants us to receive this gift of a place in his family. And it's something, this is, I think, one of the reasons why Jesus is so compassionate and loving and gracious towards children in his ministry. He's like, let the kids come to me. The disciples are like, ah, kids are messy. Look at all that snot. They got pink eye. And Jesus is like, no, like bring them here. Let them come. He says, if anyone wants to enter the kingdom of God, you must be like one of these children. And I think part of that is because children, they are so great at just receiving gifts. They're so great at receiving gifts, right? If someone walked up to one of us adults, and we just like, I don't know, you bump into someone on the street or you like, you just see one of your like associates at work, not even like a good friend, just sort of someone you kind of know. And they're like, hey, I just, they tell you, I, I just feel like I wanted to do this for you. Uh, here's the keys to, you know, a new minivan. That's the cool car for me right now. Like, here's, here's a 2023 Honda Odyssey, bud. Yeah, ooh, yeah. As an adult, If someone's trying to hand you the keys to 2023 Honda Odyssey, which again, it's a great ride. There's a part of us that's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, whoa. Like there's, there's going to be a part of us that's like, whoa, like one, is there a catch that like, we're either suspicious. We're like, what is, what have you done? Like, is there a bomb? Like, what is it? Or we're like, this is too much, right? Like, I don't, you know, this is, this is, what can I pay? Like, can I pay you part of that? Or like, what, can we work out a, a plan over the years? Or like, how do, how do we manage this? Like, there's a part of us that's like, I, I can't take something like that. That's from a, almost a stranger. But I guarantee you, you walk up to a kid, you find a kid out in the foyer after the service, and you just tell them like, hey, here's $500. They'll take it. <laughs> like, no questions asked. 
They'll just be like, uh? Like, they probably won't even say thanks. They'll be like, uh. <laughs> they just like, go. Then they eat it, right? Like, that's, that's what they will do. Kids are so great at receiving grace. They'll just, they just take it. They just take it. It's the innocence of a child. And Jesus says that that should be our mindset. That should be our heart set when we are confronted with the incredible gift that God has given us. Salvation, reconciliation, redemption. That's how we should be. We should be grateful. Not looking for these ways to earn it. Not concerned. Recognizing, appreciating, acknowledging that there is nothing, as a child of God, there is nothing I can do that will somehow make God love me more or love me less. The reality is that for God's children, he cannot love us more than he already does, and he will not love us less than he already does. Nothing can change the love of our Father. Nothing can snatch us away from the love of God through Jesus Christ. We can be grateful for that grace. And in doing so, what we do, we reflect and we proclaim the glory, the majesty of God. This is how Paul concludes the chapter, starting in verse 17, or the back half of 17. He says that he is our father in the presence of God whom he believed. Right? So Abraham is essentially the spiritual father for all of us. The God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. God who can bring the dead to life. God who can create all things out of nothing. And so against hope, Abraham believed in hope with the result that he would become, that he became the father of many nations. According to the declaration, so will your descendants be, right? It didn't make any sense on the human, from a human perspective, yet Abraham still believed the promise that God had made. And guess what? God was faithful to fulfill Abraham's bet, his faith, it paid off. And so verse 19, without being weak, or literally the term here is divided, without being divided in his faith, Abraham considered his own body as dead. He was about 100 years old. He was old, right? Paul's still, he's going to this history trivia. I love it. He says, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He says, Abraham was old, Sarah was old. There was no way from a human perspective they could have a kid. And yet, verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith. Again, this idea of he wasn't divided, but he was strengthened in his faith, giving glory to God. And he was fully convinced that what God promised, he was also able to do. So indeed, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. But the statement, it was credited to him, was not written only for Abraham's sake. Right? This is how Paul's wrapping it up. This wasn't just Abraham's deal that God worked out. This wasn't just Abraham's thing. He says, but this was written, this statement of crediting of righteousness was also written for our sake. To whom it will be credited. Those who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was given over because of our transgressions and he was raised for the sake of our justification. Paul says this is written for our sake, that we would be able to acknowledge, that we would be able to accept the grace of God. Jesus, who was crucified for us, Jesus, who was raised in splendor, in glory, vindicating, validating, his sacrifice, that his payment really was enough, that he truly was the way and the truth and the life. And so when we share this testimony of what God has done in our lives, it proclaims the glory of God. It's not about us, it's all about him. 
right? We can go forward as these reflecting people, these people that reflect and proclaim and testify about how great our God is. It's one of the things I love about our, our baptism Sundays here at Southwood. It's an opportunity where we get to hear from different individuals time and time again how God has changed their life. Not how they were great, not how they did all this stuff and did all that stuff. It is about how God has moved in their life. We can be these, these super fans, right? This intense fandom for the Lord and what he's accomplished because we recognize it wasn't my work. I have no room to boast. It wasn't a person. It wasn't Apollos. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Paul. Instead, it is the work of God. It's by his grace through my faith in Jesus Christ. And then I'm ready to share. Just on Friday, Friday night, our four-year-old son and myself, we got to go on a daddy date to go see the Paw Patrol movie. And boy, howdy, let me tell you, it's a movie. And when we went... And we sat there and we watched the whole thing. You know, as you know, there's like, for whatever reason, even with kid movies, there's like, tw- like movie start time is 520. The movie doesn't kick on until like 545. So we're already out of all of our entertainment. But in that time, we actually saw a music video of one of the songs that was going to be featured in the movie. We saw a whole song played out in a music video with lyrics on the screen. I'm like, this is great. We're about to, we're just seeing all the movie right now during this music video. But we see the song. Then we watch the movie. The song happens in the movie, plays almost its entirety in the movie. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this song. And then credits start, and that's the song that plays over the credits. So when we walk out of the movie theater, my, our four-year-old, he is just, like, pumped. He is pumped up. Like, he is super jazzed. It might have been the whole bag of Oreos that he ate, but I think it was just... His intense excitement and joy that he experienced watching that Paw Patrol movie, those mighty pups who, spoiler alert, get superpowers and beat the bad guy. And so they, he's coming out and he's, we get in the car and he's like, I want to listen to, I got to listen to that song. Like, I don't even think he says I want. He's like, I got to listen to that song. I was like, all right, dude, we're going to find it. So I find the song. We're listening to it in the car. I've now heard the song. Remember, I, saw th- I heard it three times in the theater. I'm not like about five times of listening to the song all the way through, uh, down like that, if you're curious. It isn't going down like that, like that. And so I'm five times into this song, and then our four-year-old, he, from the back seat, I'm like, hey, do you like the movie? He's like, yeah, it's so good. And then he says, I, literally, this is his quote. He says, I need my family to hear this song. <laughs> and he said it like two or three times, like almost as many times as I'd heard the song. At that point, he says, I need my family to hear this song. I was like, because the song's really good? He's like, yes, they need to hear it. I was like, all right, dude, we'll make it happen. And so we have listened to that song. I have now heard that song so many times. Um, but we... It was just a, one of those moments where I remember, gosh, there is something powerful about being a true believer, right? A true believer in something and someone. And what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 4, he says, that's the life that Abraham led. That's the legacy he's left behind. Not one where he's great and he's awesome and he's done amazing things. He says, the legacy of Abraham that we can step into, the legacy that we can even leave behind our lives, It's one of testifying and proclaiming the glory of God. So that's that's what we prepare for. That's what we 
we prepare for. It's what we should be ready for, to share about how great our God is.